what is the origin of the scriptures? How do we know that the scriptures are the word of God? Or how can we know that they are not just manufactured by some people in the past? So let's begin first with principles and then come to specifics. Now if we look at the world around us, we see that our primary necessities are provided for. We need air for breathing and air exists. We need water for drinking, water exists. We need food for eating, food exists. So, our primary necessities for living are provided for. And a thoughtful person can, from this, infer that there is a provider. There is a God who has provided these things. We will explore more the scientific soundness and seriousness of this design argument in our afternoon session when we talk about faith and science. But right now, we will take this as a Speaking or take out point for us that okay, if we accept that there is a God who has provided our fundamental necessities for living, then it is an equally logical inference that that same God who has provided us the things for living will also provide us the knowledge for living. Knowledge is also a necessity for living. It may not be a necessity in the sense that you may say that it's not that if I don't know the purpose of life I will die. Yes, we may die if we don't get food or water or air. But actually a fundamental category confusion occurs when we equate the necessities for living with the purpose for living. There is a difference between a necessity for living and a purpose for living. You know, money, for example, is a necessity for living. But when people make the necessity into a purpose, when money becomes the driving purpose, money becomes the only purpose of people's life, then their life becomes squeezed into a unidimensional pursuit for something which doesn't bring any lasting satisfaction. So, there are necessities which are important. Not having necessities causes misery. But having necessities in and of itself does not bring happiness to life. No. If, you are, if I am starving, I am miserable. Yes, there are starving people who are suffering. But there are so many welfare people. Are all of them happy? No. So, fulfilling a necessity is important. But fulfilling a necessity does not fulfill the purpose of life. The knowledge of the purpose of life is another category of knowledge which is actually higher, more important. Now, animals don't have the intelligence to inquire about the purpose of life. They can inquire only about how to fulfill the immediate necessities of life. Where do I get food to eat? Where can I defend myself from predators? Where can I get a meat? These sort of things. We humans, we also have these drives and we also fulfill those drives. But we all want something more. 
Why? Because we all want purpose for living. So purpose is also a necessity for living. And in fact, it's a higher level necessity as compared to the other body systems. So we can logically say that God will also provide the this necessity, which is actually the purpose of life, knowledge. So in principle, if there is a intelligent God, and if you look at the complexity, the intricacy, the delicacy, the artistry of nature around us, we can surely see that the person who has made it is a very intelligent person. And that person will not just leave this whole world like that, will surely give some knowledge of how we are living in this world. Imagine there's a computer manufacturing giant, big world, and company. It makes a particular kind of computer which is different from the normal computers. Say, now most people say use Windows. Like somebody is using a Mac computer. And it's a somewhat different how to use it. If somebody makes a completely different computer and doesn't give any manual only, you say, what kind of intelligence is this? You spend so much intelligence on making the machine. Could you spend a little bit of influence on providing money? Otherwise, how would you use it? So, from the point of pure logic, if you just accept the point that there is an intelligent God who is providing for our basic necessities for the day, then that intelligent God will also provide our necessity of knowledge. So, that is the fundamental principle for understanding the validity of the universal principle of scripture as a divine source of knowledge. Now, Going from this principle, let's go to the specifics now. Now, how can we know that scripture is actually the word of God? So now, when we want to verify something, generally, we have to have some alternative source of knowing it. Isn't it? See, if a teacher is going to assess the paper of a student, the student has written 3 plus 3 is 7. Now the teacher has to have some alternative source of knowledge that is more reliable than what the student is given. Only then the student can assess. Teacher can assess the student, isn't it? So now if we are going to assess whether scripture is the word of God, on what basis are we going to assess? Do we have alternative source of knowledge based on which we can compare scripture? So now, most of you have gone through the earlier sessions where we have Pratyaksha, Anuman and Shabda. So now, when we talk about Pratyaksha, Anuman, we know our direct perception is limited. And further, the inference that we draw from it is also defective. So, therefore, these in and of itself, we cannot use to directly uh, evaluate or falsify scripture. Now, I'm not saying Pratyaksha, Anuman are false. I'm just saying that they are not entirely reliable forms of knowledge. So therefore, we have to look whether scripture itself gives us some methodology for verifying its authenticity. Now, again, let's, right now, we are discussing at the level of logic. Now, I am not taking the argument that scripture is the self-evident word of God and we should be questioning. So, we are simply going from logic and we will come to scripture specifically more later. Now, from the point of view of logic, how do I know whether a particular book is an animal for a particular product? Now, one way is that 
have to go and ask the manufacturer. First of all, I have to find out, oh, are you really the manufacturer? And then are you the writer of this manual? Is this the manual for this book? So now, we can't do that for God. Because God is not accessible for us. So if I just had a device and I had a family, what would I do? Then there are two things. One is, does the man, what, what the manual says, does it help me to make sense of the device? The manual says, okay, this is the power button, and this is the button for toggling the window, the windows, this is the button for this, for ads, this is the button for this. And it helps me make better sense. And then not only it helps me make better sense, but it works. Yeah, I can actually make use of the device, and if I'm already using the device, I can make more productive and effective use of the device if I have a manual. So similarly, at a tentative level, we can look at scripture and see when I study scripture, does it help me to make better sense of the world around us? Just as there can be a say a computer, which is a technological device, the whole universe is like a cosmological device. And scripture is like a manual for this cosmological device. So does it help me? to make better sense of the world. And we will find that if we study scripture from those who are really upon the scripture, it does help us to make better sense of the world. And further, if we apply the scriptures in our life, they do help us to become better human beings, more happy, more self-controlled, more directed in our lives. So this basic criteria we can see, does it help me to make sense and does it help me to work better in the world? Now, uh, regarding the Vedic scriptures themselves, they are in two categories, Shruti and Smriti. Shruti is what is heard and smriti is what is remembered. Now the there, there is there are three things now which you have to understand the correlation carefully. There is the concept, there is the word, and there is the object. So for example, now this is a garland. Okay? Now garlands can be of many different kinds. So whenever you hear the word garland, some concept comes in the mind. There can be a flower garland, there can be a jewel garland, there can be a money garland. There are different kinds of garlands can be there. So, there is a concept, there is a term, and there is an object. So, object is the physical thing, the term is the verbal tool for that thing, and the concept is the mental equivalent of that. So now, the words that we speak, the terms that we use, they are temporal. They are material sounds. But the scripture, Veda, scripture is a sound that is eternal. So even when the creator, it's a manual which is provided by God. And the Vedic philosophy is that 
creation in one sense is cyclic. All things are created and they are destroyed. But the principle of matter in the material world is always there. Matter always exists. So for this material world, the in principle there always has to be scriptural knowledge there. So Veda, the sound of the Shruti is eternal. So till now what I talked about earlier was the concept of scripture as a guidance provided by God as a necessity for human beings. Now I am talking about the, the sound of scripture. So the sound of scripture, especially Shruti, is eternal. Rigveda, for example, when European scholars came to India, and Europeans came to India as a part of colonization of India, they found that the Rigveda which was then and now Yaska was a famous uh, commentator on Rigveda, thousands of years ago. And similarly there are other commentators, their commentaries were there, the Rigveda did not change one word. Exactly the same practice. And how was it? Because it was memorized, there were four methods of memorizing the Rigveda. First, you just memorize the full Veda sequentially, you know, from front to back. Another was memorize it back to back. Third was memorize just the first words of each verse of the Rigveda. And fourth was memorize important words. It's a whole elaborate science. And it was memorized in a very, very systematic way and was preserved. So, this is the sound being preserved. This example I am giving of that. But the sound is eternal. The sound of the Rigveda, sound of the Shruti, is eternal. I am giving Rigveda as an example here. And that eternal sound is communicated periodically by the Supreme Lord to Brahma at the start of creation. Now, the sound exists in an unmanifested form. When there is no creation. When the universe is created, at that time Brahma is the first created human And Lord Vishnu, Lord Krishna, he gives that sound to Brahma. And from Brahma, he uses to desire to Narada. Narada uses to Yasa. And then Yasa uses it, there are specific for each of the Vedas and for each of the six systems of philosophy that emerge from the Vedas. There are special receivers. There is Paila Rishi, there is Jainini Rishi, there are various Rishis. And it's not that these Rishis are the originators of any of the Vedas. They are the primary teachers. They are the primary commentators. They are the primary exponents. But they, there is actually no origin for Shruti. Shruti is eternal and it is periodically when creation takes place, it is given to Brahma and through him it is transmitted. So, uh, now coming to the third thing. So we talk about concept, we talk about the sound or the term, and now we are talking about the object. The object, the Vedas, uh, they were put into written form 5000 years Now, Vyasa did this because he found that in Kalyuga, people had less memories, and because of that, they would not be able to recollect, uh, recollect and and preserve and if they have to comprehend it will take them much more effort to comprehend unless they and it will be much easier for them to comprehend if they have things written down so therefore he put things down in writing now if you want to look for the original manuscripts 
India is a hot land and things are not preserved. So, uh, those scholars, now this is the traditional scriptural understanding of the origin of the scriptures. Now, uh, the, there is an empirical approach which is used by historians and other empirical researchers to try to trace back when were the Vedas actually written and they come up with their own idiosyncratic chronology. They say, oh, Rig Veda is the oldest and the Purana is the most recent. Now, they have their own theory which has its flaws, which academicians themselves will admit. But rather than going into the specifics of the voice of their theories, let's focus on the principle. The principle here is how will we know empirically when was the Rig Veda first written? We'll have to look back at manuscripts. And it's well known that in India manuscripts don't last for long. And actually, it's not just a problem of India. Even if we go to Europe, they have this, uh, the Middle East, they have the scriptures, the Bible, the Bible or whatever. The Old Testament is much older than Jesus. So then, they also know very well that manuscripts won't last. So if we are just looking for manuscripts, obviously we are not going to go very far. Then what is another way we can know? We can look at other literature that were written and see whether they contain references to the Vedas or not. So if they contain references to the Vedas, then say, okay, the Vedas were there at that time. But then that is very empiric. How many of the ancient literature do we have right now? It's, it's a uh, very, very unreliable, speculative, sketchy sort of narrative we get. And assuming still, but suppose we found out accurately when it was the first manuscript written. But what are we finding when we find the manuscript? It's like, you know, suppose somebody has stolen, a thief has stolen money from a man. And now we don't know who the thief is. And all that we know is that the thief took the money in a black bag. And then you search, okay, where, where, who saw the black bag? Who saw the black bag? Who saw the black bag? You trace backward, 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 and so on. You know, from Calcutta, you go to Mumbai, Mumbai, you go to Chennai, from Chennai, you go to Delhi, from Delhi, you go to Karachi, from Karachi, you go to Kuwait, from Kuwait, you go to Dubai, you go to Abu Dhabi, and finally you find the bank there, and you say, there's no money there. So, <laughs> finding the bank doesn't tell us anything about the money. Isn't it? So, similarly, even if we come to know when was the first manuscript written, the origin of the manuscript is not the origin of the knowledge. Because the knowledge has been transmitted in a oral tradition for a long time. And uh, the reality, the vibrancy of the oral tradition is testified to even by empirical historians. Empirical historians. Because uh, even when, say, 17th, 18th century, at that time, literacy was not very widespread. But knowledge of the scriptures was very widespread. Why? Because this is oral tradition. In fact, in the past, before Gutenberg made the printing press and books started becoming widespread, books, whether in India or in the West, were actually read only. And books were read only by elite class of people. And knowledge was largely given to the oral tradition. So, even if we go and find the origin of the text, we do not arrive necessarily at any marker about the origin of the knowledge. So, that's why this whole method of empirically, speculatively trying to find out what is the origin of scripture 
it will only give us lightning, no light. The some little lightning you will get, okay, some flashes, oh, this was a manuscript here, this was a manuscript, this was a manuscript here. But we are not getting any systematic light, no illumination to actually know. So therefore, we refer to the traditional understanding. And the traditional understanding is actually the transformative understanding. The empirical understanding, there are many scholars who study the scriptures, and at the end of the day, what is the result? Now, most of them don't even believe in God. Uh, most of them continue with their uh, unfortunate bad habits. And most of them, the scriptures will transform their lives. So, the traditional way of understanding is not only much more coherent in terms of helping us make sense of scripture, but also much more potent in terms of transforming our lives. The great saints who have uh, elaborated the scripture, they have lived pure, principled, selfless lives. And they have benefited so many people during their lives and in posterity also. So, I'll repeat quickly what is the uh, origin of Vedic scriptures from the traditional point of view? So, we'll see the three levels that is, the concept, there is the sound, and then there is the object. So, the concept of scripture is that it's a manual and it's eternal. And it gets manifested whenever there is a creation and there are people who need that knowledge. Then as a sound, it comes, it is co-eternal. It comes through Brahma down and for a long time passing over oral tradition. And with the decline of the intellectual faculty in the start of Kaliuga, it is put in a text format at the start of Kaliuga, which the tradition tells us around 5000 years ago. And that is how the knowledge becomes available to us. So now all that I talk about right now, applies to Shruti. There is another category of knowledge called as Smriti. Smriti as the word means recollection. So the Vedic knowledge is a knowledge to be lived. And it's not just a knowledge, it's not that uh, there, there are in one sense uh, you call it uh, these are rough terms I'm using. These are very serious philosophical concepts. There is formal, formulaic knowledge and there is semantic knowledge. Formulaic knowledge means E is equal to mc square. You have some mathematical equations. Now, even if people don't know that what the equations mean, you just use the equation to get the result. But semantic knowledge means you have to actually understand the meaning. Then only we understand what it is. So. Like that, there is the Shruti, their potency is in preserving the literal sound. Just the recitation of the Rigveda itself is very beautiful. Now, Shruti focuses more on semantics, more on comprehension. So, that knowledge, the Shruti also, the essential knowledge which is passed down by, Brahm, by Krishna to Brahma to Narada to Vyasa, like that, there are great sages who have heard that knowledge, contemplated that knowledge, assimilated that knowledge, and then that transmitted that knowledge according to time-free circumstances. So, so the form of smriti is not fixed. Smriti is according to time-free circumstances. That means that, say for example, <coughs> Krishna is speaking to Arjuna Bhagavad Gita. 
when Krishna is speaking to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, we will see that in the fourth chapter, he tells Arjuna, Imam Vivasvate Yogam Prottamanam Avrayam In the Kaabhavu, I give this knowledge to Vivasvam, the Sun God. Now when Krishna gave the knowledge to the Sun God, at that time, he would not have recited this verse, Imam Vivasvate Yogam Prottamanam Avrayam Isn't it? <laughs> Why? Because that is a context specific knowledge. There is a core knowledge which is eternal. But there is a framing in the rate, which will, uh, there is, that will change according to So, Smriti, its form changes, substance remains the same, but the form changes according to time, place, circumstances. So, there are sages who see the audiences, they have assimilated the knowledge, and then they see how can this knowledge be presented in the most effective way to the audience, and then they present it accordingly. So, now some scholars, some empirical scholars consider sometimes smriti as of a lower level than shruti because they say oh, smriti is simply the recollection of the series. Shruti is the original revelation. However, it's not like that. Yes, there is a principle that in now there is a whole field of knowledge <coughs> which is <coughs> semiotics. I'm not going to technicalities again. But the point is, how is scripture to be understood? That's called as hermeneutics. Anybody will look at how is it to be understood? What are the methods of interpreting? What are the methods of, uh, uh, of assigning priorities? So normally, if there's a, if there seems to be a contradiction between Shruti and Smriti, Shruti is considered to be a higher power. But in terms of comprehension, Smriti is always more accessible because it is written according to time, place, circumstances. It's spoken according to time, place, circumstances. So now, in actually in the scripture itself, in the Veda itself, it says that if somebody understands only the way, the Shruti and not the Smriti, that person's knowledge is incomplete. Because Smriti makes the knowledge contemporary for the audiences. So that's why we see the Smritis are relatively simpler to understand. The Smritis are in two categories, Ityasas and Puranas. The Ityasas are the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. And more another eighteen Puranas. Now, the Puranas and Ityasas both are in one sense giving history, but they are not using the method of historiography which was developed by pre post Newtonian Western scientific methods. See, post Newtonian Western science focused on history primarily as an activity of documenting the occurrence of events in terms of precision of facts. Okay, this battle happened in this state. This many forces were on this side. This many forces were on this side. But prior to that, again not in India, in the West also. If you look at Homer, Virgil, all these ancient uh, historians and their writings, you see that their method is different. History is not just for record keeping. History is for instructing, illuminating. Yes, records are kept, but the emphasis is not on precise keeping of records. Emphasis on learning from history. See, even if you have the most precise record of what happened in history, what will that amount to? It will just be a list of the names of dead successful people. You know, unsuccessful people name won't come in history. But successful people name come in history, but they are also going to die. 
So what is learned from that method? So the method in the Quran and Tiyasa is a non-precise giving of facts. And I am not saying by this the facts there are imprecise. But the point I am making is, the focus is not giving precise facts. The focus is instructing, learning how to learn better. That is the focus of the scriptures. So, Ittihasa's uh, focus on one particular period in history. For example, the Ramayana focuses on the life of Lord Ram. The Mahabharata focuses on one specific segment in the history of the Bharata dynasty. That is, the life of the Pandavas. The Puranas, on the other hand, are more of compilations of historical accounts. They are discussions between sages, and in those discussions, different historical accounts are put together under some particular theme. So, this is how the Smriti is, they are more contemporary in terms of their accessibility. And in Smriti, there may be some variations in the sense that the uh, the smritis sometimes focus, as I said, primarily on giving instruction. So therefore, the some historians say actually smritis are very recent in this Sanskrit, and the shrutis are ancient Sanskrit. So therefore, the shrutis are older and the smritis are recent. But that that is not the point that again we are talking about form and substance. Bhaktisam Prabhu give the example that in the same person can wear different dresses a different type. In a hot season, a person will wear one kind of dress. In a cold season, a person will wear another kind of dress. Similarly, the essential knowledge is the same, but that knowledge is presented about timely circumstances. Therefore, Smriti is presented for a simpler audience for the common people. Shruti is the life of the Brahmanas. It requires much more intelligence to comprehend Smriti. So because it's a different language, that doesn't mean even if the Sanskrit is recent, even if Sanskrit is simple, that doesn't mean that it is recent in terms of the origin of the knowledge. It's recent only in terms of the expression of the knowledge in contemporary times. So therefore, Shruti and Smriti are both authentic and both are important for us to move forward in our understanding of Scripture. So, 